Welcome. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, my little lovely babies out there enjoying the lovely world. It's cold as shit where I am, but you know what? I'm going to get through this, and I hope all of you get through it as well. So, again, I'm your host, Coop. This is the Paranautica Podcast, and it's going to be a different format today because, you know, Scott's not here with us anymore, so he's not going to do the tray per tray anymore, and so therefore... When there when when there are headlines that are newsworthy, I'll use them and update you guys on ones that are interesting and pertain to this podcast. And then you know I'm just gonna read some cool stories, cool in terms of like, well that was pretty cool to hear, but man the topic is really dark and gnarly. But you know what? That's the Paranautica podcast. That's what I do here. So with that said, let me. Just let me open up a goddamn document because you know what? I didn't have it open. I did have it open and I closed it and now I need it again. <sighs> Today's been a rough, rough day. If you can't hear it in my voice. Okay. All right. So before we get started, I just wanted to make a few updates because it does pertain to the episode for today. So there was another batch of Epstein names released, and now there are like 3,000 documents in total that have been released, and we have 187 different names to go through. I don't know, man. It's like Prince Andrew, Lex Wexner, Victoria's Secrets, you know, Marvin Minsky, Thomas Pritzker, these guys that that um, Virginia Gouffre was saying she was trafficked to, and these guys are like New Mexico governor pioneer of ai you know uh wyatt the hyatt hotel chief bill clinton we all know about that old news there you know but some other names that were released so I'll, I'll name a few of these bill gates george lucas bruce willis cameron diaz leonardo dicaprio stephen hawking kevin spacey ken Starr, woody allen harvey weinstein dustin hoffman chris tucker elon musk mick jagger mark zuckerberg jeff bezos david copperfield jimmy buffett and wrap it up michael jackson um, but let's, let's go on to this next one here. So this came out on um, the 3rd of January, 2024. There was a high-end sex ring in Boston and the D.C. area. Uh, there, It was a honeypot going on, and it seems like Russia, China, and South Korea, and possibly Israel, was behind it. So they had a couple locations, um, a bunch of like buildings set up. And so I think six people or three or six people have been charged with it, all like South Korean people. And so these brothels were set up and they were high end brothels. And like the clients were members of Congress, military officers, national security contractors who possess security clearances. And yeah, professors, lawyers, scientists, corporate executives. So it's a honeypot. And these people were. These foreigners were bringing in Americans, got these hottie bodadis, giving them massages, you know, pure massages for $600 an hour. And the massages are so good that these guys are giving up secret, top secret information to these massage therapists. And well, it didn't really work too well. So they got busted. And none of the clients have been identified so far. I mean, they not to us yet. Uh, they know who they are and they're trying to work their way around it to hide the fact, cover it all up. Um, but there are six target locations. Um, 
four in the Boston area and two in Virginia. And, well, I mean, they got busted. I don't know. It doesn't say how they got busted. They got busted. Um, But let's bring up this last little update here. It's about Sarah Ransom, one of Epstein's and Maxwell's many victims. Um, it actually came from December 16th, 2022, published in the People's Voice. Uh, so Epstein victim has tapes showing super VIP elites raping and murdering children. One of Jeffrey Epstein's child sex trafficking victims has told a court that she made copies of tapes showing VIP elites raping and killing children and committing other heinous crimes. So she made a deposition revealed that, and in it she re- revealed that Epstein made several tapes of some of his most powerful and wealthy friends which he, which she was able to make copies of, and she stored them in multiple places around the world, according to her deposition. And she went on to say that the footage she saw will haunt her for the rest of her life, and she can clearly see the two men's faces. And uh, she did not identify those men because she said that she would be found dead within a week. So she did not, not identify them in court. But she knows who they are. Who knows? Maybe it's the Podesta brothers. But we already know the names of Jeffrey Epstein's closest super VIP household name friends, though. I mean, we have the flight logs. We have both of Epstein's books. But to make matters worse for Epstein's VIP friends, reports from tech forums reveal that Sarah Ransom's videos have been circulating on the dark net. So if anyone has copies of those, send them to the Paranautica Network. We, uh, we'll have our lawyers look over them. So according to reports, these videos feature VIP elites drinking children's blood and engaging in satanic ritual sacrifices. Not a surprise to me. Might be a surprise to many of you. In 2018, reports emerged that a video was circulating that featured former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and her aide, Huma Abedin, sexually assaulting a child. And while that is shocking enough, viewers reported that the video also revealed the two men filleted the child's face, wearing it like a mask on their own, and then drank her blood as part of a satanic ritual to ingest adrenochrome. Uh, That film was named Frazzle Drip, but the actual title of it is Frazzled.rip, and rip is a file as it pertains to a file that has been extracted. So a New York Police Department detective, Miocitis Familia, was unfortunate enough to view the video and realized that she was unable to take action against the elite VIP perpetrators of the heinous crimes. And less than a week later, she was found dead. Whether it was a suicide or a hit, we may never know. But other reports, even mainstream reports, state that 9 out of 10 FBI agents who viewed the videos of this frazzle drip have died from suicide. But we're going to get into that, the whole frazzle drip and all of that, in a later part in the series. Um, Bill Gates, you know, he spent hundreds of millions of dollars funding mainstream media outlets all over the world, turning them into propaganda mouthpieces for his own globalist agenda. An investigation by the independent outlet Mint Press reveals that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has distributed $319 million in the form of over 30,000 individual grants to media outlets and fact checkers. Fucked fact checkers. Now, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Consider the newspaper of the record. It's a mouthpiece of the globalist elite. Major mainstream news outlets, including CNN, NBC, The Atlantic, The Financial Times, BBC, and others are all beneficiaries of Gates funding. Gates and Bezos are two of Epstein's well-known super VIP friends. Sarah Ransom's claim is about the tapes have been backed up by two of Epstein's victims, Maria Farmer and Virginia Gouffre 
who claim that they saw a room full of CCTV CCTV monitors at Epstein's $65 million mansion in New York, including some showing cameras in the toilets. Should put a flush sound there. Nice, nice. When police raided Epstein's mansion in 2019, they found dozens of tapes of girls in a library that he kept. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell appeared to have admitted the tapes existed after being tricked by a journalist for the TV show 60 Minutes, telling him, I don't know where they are. <laughs> According to the deposition, among the men that Ransom claims she was forced to have sex with was Epstein's former lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, who was on record demanding the age of consent be lowered to just 14. And Alan, um, he, he sounds accused of having sex with multiple uh, girls. Says, uh, oh, Dershowitz, who stands accused of having sex with multiple alleged Jeffrey Epstein victims, says, Statutory rape is an outdated concept, and there should be Romeo and Juliet exceptions to statutory rape law. In a now-suppressed op-laud, Dershowitz wrote, It is obvious that there must be criminal sanctions against sex with very young children, but it's highly doubtful whether such sanctions should apply to teenagers above the age of puberty, since voluntary sex is so common in their age. That's my Alan Dershowitz voice. That hurt my throat, honestly. (coughs) Man. So anyway, that's a... Uh, <laughs> a few updates um, as it relates to the show we're about to jump into here. Whoever didn't want this stuff out did a good job of getting rid of a lot of this stuff off the internet. You have to go back into archived places to get this stuff. Like you have to go to the Wayback Machine. It's a process to like look at these facts um, that people are talking about and have to go Wayback Machine to look at the actual, you know, archived documents and stuff to to make sure it's legit. It's a lot of work, but finding the good stuff, you have to go searching for it. So obviously everything is scrubbed. Like not only that, it goes really deep and it gets very gruesome. It's just really weird at times. And uh, yeah, I don't not even give a cautionary statement here because I mean, if you're listening to this channel, you know what to expect. I assume, I assume you do. So let's get into this. Let's fucking get into this, huh? So people who believe in the truth are often called a conspiracy theorist. That is, they believe in these theories that have a lot of evidence to back the theory up, sort of like, you know, an actual truth. And so instead of calling them conspiracies, we should call them scandals because that is what they are. Now, for the record, a conspiracy theorist is actually what they, you know, the sinister they, have consistently used to try to discredit all of those who won't nibble at their official narratives. The term was literally birthed from the CIA's own think tank to discredit anyone who didn't believe their official narrative following their assassination of poor old John F. Kennedy. Unfortunately, the CIA's own term, conspiracy theorist, has been successful to a certain extent in that people are afraid of being called crazy and labeled a conspiracy theorist. But it doesn't need to be like that. And honestly, I think more and more people have become cognizant that so many of these conspiracies have become so true and more and more are realizing that the world isn't what it has always seemed. Now, there are a number of conspiracy truths, 
that have proliferated modern day minds. And that's my band name, by the way. So don't take that. For instance, the moon landing, who killed JFK, chemtrails, predictive, tr- uh, predictive programming, aliens, UFOs, 5G, COVID, flat earth, hollow earth, ancient civilizations such as Atlantis and Lemuria, just to name a few. But today, I'm going to begin part one of what will probably be, not even probably be, it, it will be a three-parter on the topic that is most well-known by the name Pizzagate. And to start, I think that the main reason, if not the reason, that most people think that Pizzagate is ridiculous is because they are too heavily influenced by the mainstream media who, just to remind everyone, went on a nonstop overtime blitz to quickly undermine and ridicule the story by instantly labeling it a conspiracy, literally as soon as the story broke. But they didn't try to just discredit the story and the evidence that supported it. They started going after anybody and everybody who spoke a word about it being factually based. There were even many reporters within the mainstream media who ultimately lost their jobs and were publicly humiliated because they went off script and discussed the facts in the case. People like Ben Swan, who worked with CBS and reported on the story as soon as it broke. He was subsequently fired for it. So not too long ago, maybe around two months Maybe a little longer, shorter, I don't know. But Elon Musk posted on Twitter or his ex about hashtag Pizzagate, which revived the otherwise dying issue. Now, this shit runs deep and there are layers upon layers upon layers involved here. And I'm only reporting on what has been made available to the public only because of the many intrepid and fearless researchers who have put so much time and effort into exposing this thing from the beginning. Also. This is a rabbit hole of rabbit holes, just holes upon holes upon dirty holes. And it gets super overwhelming simply because of how many people are involved and just how far this thing stretches and reaches out there. And yes, many of the people involved with Jeffrey Epstein are involved in Pizzagate. So anyone can just go look through the names and just cross-reference them and see the bigger picture. I mean, you can check that shit out. It seems like there's always a connection with any ring there are always like these political connections there, so always it's always there. And a lot here that child sexual abuse, including ritualistic child sexual abuse, is not isolated and contained within Comet Ping Pong or Besta Pizza or the Pegasus Museum or Epstein's Little St. James Island, where Disney Cruises sold packages for children to go scuba diving. It's not isolated to Epstein's other island, Great St. James, which is being exposed as of now. Oh, and side note, and I'll try not to derail this too much, but the Bidens own some property on a nearby island on Water Island. And some people say that the Bidens own the entire island. And that may be true. But what we know for certain is that they own some property on it. But what is in, what is pretty interesting is this. Water Island is a 500-acre spit of land in the U.S. Virgin Islands. The Department of Defense purchased the island from a Danish company during World War II, using it to protect a submarine base on nearby St. Thomas. Since then, it has become an under-the-radar tropical getaway dotted with several dozen homes, where the largest beachfront estates can fetch north of a million dollars. And now, for anyone familiar with Ghislaine Maxwell and Epstein, then you'd know that Ghislaine had a submarine license with a sub on it or around Little St. James Island, so it's not hard to fathom that connection. Now, back on topic. 
child sex rings are not isolated to the previously mentioned places, nor are they isolated within Washington, D.C., where Comet Ping Pong is. But one thing is well known, Washington, D.C. is a hub of such activity. And for those unaware of those sorts of things, i.e. child sex rings, or maybe we should call it what it really is, systematic child rape with child sexual abuse, often with ritualistic overtones, one need not look too far back in history to see that these groups of high-profile people are certainly involved. For example, I'll mention the Dutro Affair, which was an international child sex ring operating through the 1980s and 1990s until it was uncovered, dissolved, and resumed elsewhere. It's centered in Belgium, but involved high-level politicians and celebrities from the Netherlands, Portugal, the United States, Great Britain, Japan, the United Nations, NATO, the Bilderbergs, Mossad, MI6, and so many more. And in that case, a Belgium man named Marc Dutro was the official fall guy who received life for at least four murders, as well as at least 11 rapes of both children and young women. His wife, Michelle Martin, received 30 years. Mitchell Lelavere, an accomplice, also got 30 years. Another accomplice, Bernard Weinstein, was murdered by Dutroux before he could be tried. And the richest of his low-level accomplices that took the fall, Mitchell Nahul, a businessman, had his charges dropped to merely participating in human and drug trafficking and sentenced to five years. Mark Dutroux is still alive today. He was just a small fish compared to who was handling him, but there's so much to mention. Too much here. Another important mention is the Franklin Scandal, also known as the Franklin Cover-Up, which was also in operation in the 1980s and 90s and was centered in Franklin, Nebraska, and involved cowboys taking midnight tours to the White House. Yes, you heard that. Homosexual prostitution inquiry ensnares VIPs with Reagan and Bush. Homosexual prostitution inquiry ensnares VIPs with Reagan and Bush. And that would be the then... President Ronald Reagan and the incoming president, George Popiskin Herbert Walker Bush, who also served as a director of the CIA in the mid to late 1970s and who was instrumental in the Iran-Contra affair, as well as the Mena, Arkansas cocaine smuggling operation, which involved Arkansas Governor Slippery Dickery Bill Clinton before he became president. The connections are ridiculous. Also closely involved was ex-Green Beret Lieutenant Colonel and High Priest of a Satanic Church Michael Aquino. You guys may have heard of him. Pretty interesting fella. If you've seen a picture of him as a kid and how he looks now, they look basically the same, just younger. Aside from being a long-standing Satanist within the high ranks of government, Michael Aquino was also involved with MKUltra, which is still happening today, only under different names, under many different programs. The interesting part to that story is that a former Republican senator and attorney, John DeCamp, was involved in a documentary called Conspiracy of Silence, which is a great movie. It exposed the network of politicians and religious leaders who were part of the systematic child sexual abuse. The documentary was uh, it was scheduled to be aired on television on May 3rd, 1994. But at the last minute, pretty literally, an unknown congressman or someone acting as such called the television station and threatened the network if they were to air the documentary. And so it was never aired. Simultaneously, unknown people with some degree of influential power ordered for all copies of the film to be destroyed. 
Luckily, though, John DeCamp kept a copy of it, as he should, and provided that to retired FBI chief Ted Gunderson, who deserves a round of applause for his hard work in these things. But because of Ted, you can watch the film, which can be found on YouTube, Conspiracy of Silence, because, yeah. Real quick, though, I just wanted to add something that former CIA director and friend of John DeCamp, William Colby, told to John DeCamp in 1994. He said, What you have to understand, John, is that sometimes there are forces and events too big, too powerful, with so much at stake for other people or institutions, that you cannot do anything about them, no matter how evil or wrong they are, and no matter how dedicated or sincere you are or how much evidence you have. This is simply one of the hard facts of life you have to face. End quote. And William Kobe was apparently on John's side and was trying to help him expose some of these secrets. But William Kobe, well, he'd be found dead in the tributary of the Potomac River in Maryland on April 27th, 1996. He was apparently canoeing alone and had some sort of an accident and drowned. He was 76 years young. Interestingly, John DeCamp himself would die about 21 years later on July 27th, 2017. He was also 76. Again, there's too much to say about the Franklin scandal here, but the Detroit affair and the Franklin scandal are two of the more well-known child sex rings that involve very prominent politicians. Obviously, the lower players, the smaller fish, so to say, always take the fall while the powerful elite continue on with leading the world and keeping the citizens safe, which is the pattern we see with these things. And the reason I bring those two cases up is because there are so many people who tend to think that large-scale international child sex rings involving world leaders just don't happen, that they simply can't happen, and that the child sex ring exposed in 2016 and centered around Comet Ping Pong is nothing but fake news propagated and carried out by Russian hackers with no purpose other than to discredit Hillary Clinton during her presidential campaign. Well, the fact of the matter is that child sex rings and ritualistic sexual abuse does occur on a regular basis within the circles of powerful elite all over the world. Other unfortunate mentions include the McMartin Preschool Ring, the Concord Boys Home, the Presidio Military Daycare Ring, the United Kingdom Ring, the Hampstead Ring, the Finders Cult, DynCorp, the Boy Scouts of America, and of course, the Catholic Church, and so many more. But look, when I say the government, I don't mean the entire structure of what the government consists of. For those who don't know, there are three branches of the U.S. government, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial, each supposed to be independent of one another and supposed to ensure that the other two don't overstep the extent of their power and I despise that word, especially in the context of government. Government and power is a horrible mix. Anyway, within those three branches are all sorts of other groups comprised of things such as committees, subcommittees, special interest groups, and all that shit. And I think the majority of people understand that, but obviously there are some who don't. Anyway, there are numerous groups independent of each other within the government who are involved in nefarious things, and these groups often overlap. For example... Certain individuals in, say, Group A are also members of Group B, but there are other members of Group A who are also members of Group G, which also has members who are not members of Group B, and so on and so on. Think of it like a, a Venn diagram where multiple circles overlap, 
which create groups within groups. That's how this whole that's how this whole thing works. People involved in different networks inside of the motherfucking government. So, how did the whole PizzaGate thing begin anyway? And real quick, PizzaGate should not be confused with Pedogate. And while they both have one thing in common that the names are almost as comical, um, and take away the severity of what they truly are, they they are different. Pizzagate refers to the child sexual abuse in relation to Comet Ping Pong and its Washington, D.C. connections. Pedalgate refers to the international scope of child sexual abuse, ritualistic abuse, and trafficking. In that regard, we're talking things like Epstein Island, Richard Branson, Prince Andrew, and things of that nature. Now, I'll remind the listeners that I, for one, do not call myself a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or any of that nonsense. I personally don't subscribe to any of that illusionary device of garbage that serves one purpose, which is just to divide us. And, you know, and I'm saying this because for whatever reason, it's the Democrats that seem to be involved in Pizzagate. But I'm not saying that the Republicans are not, because I'm sure that many are, especially considering that both sides are on the same team. They're just not the ones with the spotlight on them. It's the Democrats. And this is why I want to make it perfectly clear that if it were the Republican elite being called out for this rather than the Democratic elite, then I would be telling this, the same story, except it would just be the Republicans being discussed. So everything else would be the same. Just it's the Democrats now. If it was Republicans, then it would be the Republicans. So now none of this is as complicated as many make it out to be and to be honest it's actually quite simple but the msm it's mainstream media and the shills who control all of those tentacles have weaved this multifaceted, multi-layered lie to conceal the truth from us which is what they always do their pattern is to take a situation which they created and use the tools of the many 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 different media outlets that they control each with their tailored viewpoints and dissenting opinions and they take multiple narratives with each one each with its own specific talking points each being more or less unique with minute differences and details and quote-unquote facts and what does that do to the average american mind who has literally been programmed their entire life through the propaganda machine that is television and education you know and televisions tell a vision what does it do it confuses them and of course what was once the behemoth of a television has been transformed into the all-encompassing telephone, the good old cell phone. Now, real quick, do you know where the name Hollywood comes from? Hollywood comes from the holly tree, a species of which grows around the area, but the holly tree was the one chosen tree that was used by the ancient Druids, who are famously known for being high priests and wizards. They would take branches from the holly tree, and make their magical wands out of them, wherein they'd perform what is called lesser magic, which was regularly practiced and popularized by the wickedest man in the world, Aleister Crowley, who was very influential within the entertainment industry himself, as well as the CIA. At any rate, Hollywood and the movies industry and the entertainment industry is full of ritualistic magic. It's in plain sight for everyone to see. It's just a matter of paying attention it's all magic. None of it is real. It's just a very sophisticated illusion in which the mind is literally hijacked through years of programming from the television, movies, music, music videos, radio, and advertisement. 
So the government, and particularly the CIA, consists of thousands upon thousands of people with hundreds upon hundreds of secret black budget programs, all funded by the taxpayers' dollars. Yes, that's right. Yet our puppet president, not just the current jackass Joe Biden, find it much more important to send millions and millions of dollars in quote-unquote financial aid and for weapons to foreign countries rather than to focus on our own issues, the serious issues that we have here back at home. And no, I'm not talking about teaching transgenderism to school children who have undeveloped minds and cannot both mentally and legally make informed decisions. And I'm not talking about encouraging vulnerable boys to cut off their dicks or how SAT tests are culturally unfair. Those are not serious issues. All that is fodder for the cattle. It's all distraction bullshit. So where did Pizzagate first originate? Well, there are two completely different answers to this, but only one passes the litmus test. The first answer is the official narrative, which right off the bat sounds pretty suspect, right? So the official narrative posits that Russian hackers have hacked in the DNC servers and were able to collect something like 44,053 emails, which had 17,761 attachments. Their official narrative says that the hijackers are able to download 1,976 megabytes of data from the DNC server, which took 87 seconds or a rate of 22.7 megabytes per second. Well, independent forensics experts and four former NSA employees concluded that the hack was not a hack at all, but rather a leak from within the DNC. And whoever leaked the emails did so using a local portable storage device. But let's just move all that off to the side for a second and take this next fact into consideration. The main power player pushing the Russiagate narrative besides Hillary Clinton was a man named Charles McGonagall. Who was he? He was a high-level special agent in charge of the FBI Counterintelligence Division in New York, and who had a very, very, very close relationship with the Clintons going back many years. Yes, that's correct. The special agent in charge of the FBI Counterintelligence Division in New York was integral in pushing the Russiagate narrative that Hillary and her clan also pushed on the American people to literally interfere in the 2016 election. But the important part of this is that just recently, earlier this year in August, Charles McGonagall pled guilty to conspiring with Russian oligarchs, namely a man named Oleg Depraska, uh, with a direct connection to Vladimir Putin himself. And the current Assistant Attorney General, William G. Olson, with the Justice Department's National Security Division, had this to say, quote, Charles McGonagall, by his own admission, betrayed his oath and actually concealed his illicit work at the bidding of the sanctions Russian oligarch. Today's plea show that the Department of Justice resolved to pursue and dismantle the illegal network. The Russian oligarch sees a child escape reach Francis Vader laws. End quote. So that is pretty telling. And so as for the second answer to how this all began is also the simplest explanation, Occam's razor. And in this case, it happens to be the correct answer. A DNC staffer, Seth Rich, was the leaker of the emails. He knew his way around the computer system and worked as a programmer and an IT administrator. Seth was an insider and was cognizant of a lot of the corrupt shit going on behind closed doors of Killer's campaign. This could be an entire five-parter in itself, and I'm sure it'll be made into a movie at some point, but Seth 
have become privy to the dirty workings going on, particularly on how Hillary and the DNC were actively rigging the 2016 primaries against Bernie Sanders. He saw that there was an insane amount, just as unreal amount of clear as day colluding with what is called the legacy media, which is another term for the mainstream media. And that all these these super PACs were directly connected with Hillary. They were doing tons of unethical and fraudulent and unfair practices specifically to prevent Bernie Mad Dog Sanders from winning the primary. All of that has been consistently verified. So, as it was, Seth Rich was pretty pissed. He was let down, especially because he really liked Bernie Mad Dog Sanders and everything that he stood for. So Seth had access to the emails, and whether or not he knew the content or the context of the content, he felt confident that he was doing the right thing by transferring copies of the 44,053 emails to an external hard drive with the intent of exposing the insider corruption to someone that would publish it, someone like Julian Assange with WikiLeaks. Furthermore, a federal investigator who reviewed the FBI forensics report on Seth's computer said that he, Seth, had made contact with the WikiLeaks connection, Gavin McFadden, who was an American investigative reporter, documentary filmmaker, and the director of WikiLeaks at the time, and who passed away from natural causes some years ago. And to add to that, Julian Assange, WikiLeaks founder, has repeatedly denied that Russia was the source of the emails. All independent investigators came to the same conclusion that the emails were not hacked, but that they were leaked by someone on the inside. Seth is said to have copied the emails to a flash drive on May 25th, 2016 and handed them to someone at WikiLeaks sometime in the preceding days. And then, on July 10th, 2016, Seth Rich was shot twice in the back with a 22 caliber handgun around 4.20 a.m. Thanks to gunfire locators, within one minute, the police were on the scene. When officers Robert Robinson, Derek Tarr, Shay Ellis, Benjamin Velez, and Mark Lee arrived, they found Seth conscious and breathing. Three of these officers had body cams. Soon the EMT would arrive and he was transported to the hospital around 6 a.m. Paramedics and hospital staff would comment later that Seth was coherent and was speaking with them. Unfortunately, we don't know if he said anything important as to who possibly shot him. But while at the Washington State Hospital, a fourth-year surgeon resident was on call for Seth Rich and he would say the following. Seth Rich was shot twice with three total gunshot wounds. Entry, exit, entry. He was taken to the OR emergency where we performed an X-lap and found a small injury to segment three of the liver, which was packed to several small bowel injuries, pretty common for gunshot to the back, exiting the abdomen, which we resuscitated 12 centimeters of bowel and left him in discontinuity. Didn't hook everything back up with the intent of performing the washout in the morning. He did not have any major vascular injuries otherwise. I've seen dozens of worse cases than his, which survived, and nothing about his injuries suggested to me that he sustained a fatal wound. In the meantime, he was transferred to the ICU and transfused two units of blood when his post-surgery. He was stable and not on any processors. Didn't seem pretty routine. About eight hours after he arrived, we were swarmed by law enforcement officers and pretty much everyone except the attending and a few nurses was kicked out of the ICU. It was weird as hell. At turnover that morning, we had instructed not to do our rounds, meaning not to make bedside visits on the VIP that came in last night. And apparently, while in stable condition, but with none of his family around, only groups of 
what seemed to be agitated police officers, he'd suspiciously succumb to the non-lethal injuries he'd suffered, and the surgeon operating Seth would go on to say, No one here was allowed to see Seth except for my attending when he died. No code was called for the cardiopulmonary resuscitation team. I rounded on patients literally next door, but was physically blocked from checking in on him. I've never seen anything like it before, and while I can't say 100% that he was allowed to die, I don't understand why he was treated like that. Take it how you may. I'm just one low-level doc. Something's fishy, though, that's for sure. Later on, Seth Rich's mom would tell an NBC affiliate that it must have been a struggle because his hands were bruised, as well as his knees and his face. The police quickly chalked it up to being a robbery gone wrong with no belongings taken from him. Whoever this robber was, they left his expensive watch, his wallet, his shoes, everything and everything of value. They just shot him at close range and took off. For some reason, the police would refuse to release the body cam footage of all three police officers who were wearing them that morning, obviously creating more suspicion. Also, the D.C. police chief would resign soon after and take a job as the head of security with the NFL for whatever that's worth. Some say it was a promotion for a job well done. Who knows? On July 22nd, 2016, WikiLeaks released the first batch of the DNC emails. The emails were timestamped from January 15th, 2015 until May 25th, 2016. There is one email from John Podesta that a lot of people say is a direct reference to the death of Seth Rich. And in that email, John is quoted as saying, I'm definitely for making an example of a suspected leaker, whether or not we have real basis for it. <laughs> the only issue with that is the fact that the email was timestamped on Sunday, February 22nd, 2015. Now, if you recall, Seth was murdered on July 10th, 2016, a year and a half after. So unless Seth had been collecting and leaking emails between when he first started working with the DNC in 2013 and the date of that threatening email, then sure, it would be reasonable that John was referring to Seth Rich. But is it definite? I mean, I don't know. And just one more very important part in relation to Seth Rich before moving on. Back on September 1st, 2017, a man named Brian Huddleston filed a FOIA request to the FBI requesting information into Seth Rich's uh, potential involvement in the DNC leaked emails, something you think the FBI would be interested in investigating. They weren't, at least not for the public's interest. In fact, they'd even order that anything related to the death of Seth Rich be sealed for 66 years. But two weeks later, the FBI responded to Huddleston saying that they were quote-unquote unable to locate any responsive main files. The one thing is, is that the FBI blatantly lied and did in fact possess some responsive main files, over 20,000 pages of them. Of those, at least 1,596 of those pages were directly related to Seth, and another 1,496 were withheld because of alleged FOIA exemptions, which makes you wonder just how important those pages are to this case, because obviously those are much more important than the ones that they're going to give uh, Brian Huddleston, if he gets them, I should say, because... By September of 2022, the U.S. District Court of the Eastern District of Texas entered an order that required the FBI and the DOJ to release the information they had related to Seth Rich's death and Brian Huddleston's FOIA requests. That motion was denied. Now let's fast forward to around November 29th, 2023. U.S. District Judge Amos Mazan ordered that the FBI release Seth Rich's personal laptop, his work laptop, 
a DVD that was inside one of the laptops, and a tape drive for investigation into a suspicious death within 14 days. So at that point, no later than December 13th. And in their response, the FBI filed a motion to extend by 30 days in order to provide a, a timeline of the disclosure of both of Seth Rich's laptops and other items. This extended the date to January 12th, 2024, which just happened. So, you know, the date's passed. It's now uh, the 14th today. So this comes out online. The update is the FBI is stalling, giving the documents and the files, whatever they were supposed to give. They are stalling on that order against the judge's orders. Um, this article says that the agency has done everything in its power to delay handing over the evidence in the Seth Rich case. For those who missed it, Seth Rich was slain. D.C. staff founded Watch D.C. in 2016. Blah, 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 blah. A litigant in Texas sued for the content of Seth Rich's laptop to be released via Freedom of Information Act. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, the FBI has not complied with this request despite being ordered by the court on two separate occasions to produce the information from Seth Rich's laptop. The latest report indicates that the FBI is once again stalling for time and refuses to release the contents of the Seth Rich laptop. On July 11th, 2024, the government filed a motion requesting yet another delay in producing the information. So, yeah, they're just they just want more time for whatever reason, just to get rid of more evidence. That's the only reason. And they're trying to say that the information should be withheld under exemptions of the FOIA Act, which, no, that's bullshit. Who knows if Judge uh, Mazant's going to go with that? He might, might not. But they're definitely still in violation of not providing that information on the date stated. So that's still going on, but we're hopeful to get that. We were hopeful to get that. So anyway, without getting too far into Seth Rich, let's move on to why the emails played a part or how the emails played into Pizzagate. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing that people aren't paying a lot of attention to. That is, whether the 44,053 emails were hacked and leaked, or if the 44,053 emails were just leaked. The issue with that is that regardless of how they were leaked, Russian hackers, or Seth Rich, the fact of the matter is that they were leaked. And if anyone remembers when this thing was kicking off, Killary and her clan were regularly talking about how these emails were hacked by Russians. They weren't denying that the emails were real. They weren't denying the contents of those emails. But the one thing that they were denying was that the emails were leaked by one of their own. Now, Killary was dead set on convincing the public that Russia was be behind the whole thing, which was proven to be fabricated by her own campaign and the legacy media. So time and time again, she just lies, lies, lies. She is such a criminal. It's crazy. But once the emails were released by WikiLeaks, it started a firestorm. Researchers began going over every letter, every single syllable, every single word of over 44,000 emails, including over 17 attachments in those emails. The highest level of scrutiny was given to those emails by thousands of people just trying to see what they could find. And then places like 4chan became the go-to repository for an up-to-date analysis of the leaked emails, which soon spilled over to Reddit. And remember, this, this is all happening as the primaries were about to kick off, if they're not already uh, kicking off at this point. But, and so the legacy media was having a heyday trying to keep up with the, with the proliferation of searches all over the World Wide Web for these leaked emails. Shit was popping. 
And while the legacy media was working overtime trying to keep people's attention away from the issue by deliberately broadcasting and publishing both disinformation and misinformation, the 4chaners and Redditors had already been catching on to the strange language, strange word usage, and the weird context in general within the emails. So there are a lot of names connected to these emails, but really quick, I'll point out some of the key players here. But keep in mind that the following is not an exhaustive list of people connected to this, not even close. The ones mentioned are just a few of the bigger names associated with these strange emails that consist of equally strange language with the use of equally strange code words. Some of these names include former President Bill Slippery Dick Clinton, who went to Epstein Island at least 26 times, Slippery Dick's sometimes wife, Hillary Clinton, who herself went to the island at least six or seven times. There's also Hillary's campaign chief, John Podesta, who was a close buddy of Epstein's. His brother, Tony Podesta, also a close buddy of Epstein's. Former U.S. Representative Anthony Weiner was also a friend of Epstein. And his former wife, who was also a political staffer and vice chair of Hillary's 2016 campaign, among other things, Huma Abedin, who is also a friend of Epstein. And there's a whole lot more on this lady that we'll get into in a later episode. That shit's crazy. Shit's crazy. Shit's crazy, man. There's also former pity puppet. <laughs> there's also former pity puppet president Barack Obama and humanity's public enemy number one, George Soros, as well as a woman named Rachel Chandler, who is a photographer, a modeling agent, and a handler with very close ties to the elite, including Jeffrey Epstein. She also worked with the disgraceful high-end trash clothing line Balenciaga and was involved with questionable photo shoots that had gotten a lot of criticism, and rightfully so, for promoting child sexual abuse, such as the picture of one of their handbags on a table or whatever, and there are court documents below it. The court documents are actually Supreme Court opinion on U.S. v. Williams, which criminalized the pandering of child pornography, but the visible portion of the document shows a reference to another Supreme Court case, Ashcroft v. Free Speech Coalition, where a court struck down a portion of the Child Pornography Prevention Act of 1996 and said that virtual child pornography is protected speech. But people like Kanye West and the Kardashians flaunt that brand openly and without shame. Other big names involved in this ongoing saga include Andrew Klein and Arun Rao, both being employed with the Department of Justice. Arun Rao is or was the chief of the Southern Division of the United States Attorney's Office in the District of Maryland. Andrew Klein is an attorney who represented the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit and was appointed by Bill Clinton. He also owns Besta Pizza, which is right next door to Bucks Fishing and Camping, owned by another key player in this list, James Elephantis, who we will get into in a minute. Next up is David Brock. David Brock is described as being one of the most influential operatives in the Democratic Party. He is a political consultant and founded the media watchdog group called Media Matters for America, which was funded by George Soros and specifically aided Hillary during her campaign. He even donated $1 million at one point in time. Very recently, around November 21st, 2023, Elon Musk filed a suit against Media Matters for manufacturing a report saying that Musk's platform was placing neo-Nazi and white nationalist ads next to legitimate companies' advertisements, which was effectively driving those companies away from the platform, causing major financial losses. 
And if you remember, recently Musk gave the big fuck you to a lot of those companies who moved away from the platform for other bullshit reasons, including ignoring what free speech means, companies such as Disney and Apple. But I think the majority of us know the real reason why they left the platform, and it's because of Musk's revival of the Pizzagate issue. And right around the same time that Musk filed his suit, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton announced that his department was initiating an investigation into media matters for possible fraudulent activity. In his notice to David Brock and his company, Media Matters, the Attorney General stated, We have reason to believe Media Matters use fraud to solicit donations from Missourians in order to trick advertisers into pulling out of X, the last platform dedicated to free speech in America. Radicals are attempting to kill Twitter because they cannot control it, and we are not going to let Missourians get ripped off in the process. I'm fighting to ensure progressive tyrants masquerading as news outlets cannot manipulate the marketplace in order to wipe out free speech. And so what is the response from David Brock and Media Matters for America? Well, they filed a retaliation suit against the Attorney General, Ken Paxton, saying that he violated their First Amendment right to free speech by preventing the company from publishing more reports about Musk and his platform while the AG's investigation takes place. Media Matters argues that, quote, They may be dragged to cart in an unknown, unfamiliar, and untouched venue in Texas. End quote. And to further add some Himalayan sea salt to the gaping wounds, Missouri's Attorney General, Andrew Bailey, also opened a pending investigation into Media Matters for other possible fraudulent activities. And this was all just very recent, just in the past few weeks. But back to David Brock. Aside from Media Matters, he also started Correct the Record, which was a super PAC created solely to protect Hillary Clinton from the barrage of very necessary and more than fair attacks against her. He also founded American Bridge 21st Century in 2010, which is a liberal to the bone super PAC that he used to literally track and record Republican candidates all over the country using high tech recording gear. They employed 50 trackers at any given time and would even try to get dirt on all of them to make campaign smear ads. Back in 2012, Brock claimed to have been blackmailed by his former boyfriend, Gary White. For $850,000 while he was with James Alephantis. Interestingly, that appeared to be a settlement issue over a house with Gary, the former boyfriend. Brock and James framed it as a blackmail for public sympathy. But the most important aspect of this connection to this whole thing is the fact that he was in an intimate relationship with a man named James Achilles Alephantis. But before we get thigh deep into James Achilles Elephantist, we need to list one other name because she is what gets the boulder in this story tumbling. Tumbling toward James Achilles Elephantis. Susan Sandler. Susan Sandler is the daughter of a wealthy ex-banker and is a real estate agent with very close ties with all of these powerful people. She is a trustee of the Sandler Foundation, which funnels billions of dollars through strategic organizations and leads funding related to education policy and quote-unquote other areas. But it is one of those leaked emails which Susan Sandler sent to John Podesta that would set in motion what would come to be known as Pizza Gate. The situation was this. 
Tony Podesta and some people had a gathering at one of the Sandler's properties sometime in late August, early September of 2014. When everybody left the property, the realtor, Catherine Tate, found a square cloth handkerchief that she simply described as white with black, which was found on the kitchen island. She then sent an email to Susan Sandler about the found handkerchief, who in turn emailed John Podesta to see if it was his. The email was sent on September 2nd and read, The realtor found a handkerchief. I think it has a map that seems pizza-related. Is it yours? They can send it if you want. I know you're busy, so feel free not to respond if it's not yours or you don't want it. The following day, Podesta emailed Susan back saying, It's mine, but not worth worrying about it. <laughs> yeah, he's just a weird lizard man. Now, at this juncture, we need to have an understanding of what the code word pizza means. Pizza is code for young children or just girl. Cheese pizza is code for either little girl or child porn. Pepperoni is code for boy. Pasta is code for little boy. Hot dogs is also code for boys or little boys. Ice cream is for male prostitute. Walnut is code for person of color. Map means semen as well as minor attracted person. Sauce is code for orgy. Dominoes means domination BDSM. And I want to make it clear that these are only some of the code words which I'm sure have gone under some uh, serious changes since all of this has come out. You know, they have to change their code words because they couldn't use the same ones or unless they do. I don't know. But back to the handkerchief. At first, the housekeeper described the handkerchief as being white with black. And in their handkerchief code available on Wikipedia, you can easily locate the meanings of words and colors and all sorts of things. But in the case, but in this case, black symbolizes S and M, sadism and masochism, and white symbolizes virginity or pedophilia. What do the other colors mean, you ask? Well, dark blue means anal beats. Light blue means oral sex. Green is hustler or prostitution. Purple is piercing. Red means fisting. Orange means anything goes. Brown means exactly what you'd think. Yellow means exactly what you'd think. And gray means bondage. But the Freemasons revere the pattern of white and black for their own reasons. Basically, the checkerboard pattern conveys the interactions of opposing forces in life. The contrast between dark and light tiles symbolizes shadow, illumination, ignorance, and knowledge. And the pattern represents both the positive and negative aspects of life. And I'm not saying anything bad about Freemasons. I'm just saying that this was John, this was John Podesta's handkerchief, and he may have had been a Freemason. That's all I'm saying. And it's probably likely. So there is also that picture of John Podesta holding up his hands, doing the Hand of Mystery, also known as the Hand of the Master Mason, which is a hermetic alchemy symbol. One of his hands on the palms there is a 14, and the left palm has a fish looking toward the right. He's also squaring his thumb and index finger on one hand, centering his face, looking all lizardly and shit. Plus, the middle finger of his left hand has a band-aid on it, signifying that he had been wounded somehow. Interestingly... Another big name before we get on to Aliphantus is Marina Abramovic, a known satanic high priestess who's connected to many big names in music and ended politics, as we see here. 
She calls herself a performance artist where she does various rituals, one being what is called spirit cooking, and we'll get into all that in a later episode. But she's done rituals with like so many famous people, people like Jay-Z, Lady Gaga, um, a lot of people have already listed. Some of these include, oh, even one of these include Ukrainian puppet president Vladimir Zelensky. So she's very connected to every key player in this Pizzagate cover-up. And what's at the heart of Pizzagate? Well, that's child sexual abuse and adrenochrome. And what is that adrenochrome? Well, it's said to keep you youthful, you know, young and sprite. And for her age, Marina's looking pretty good. I mean, she's either 76 or 77. She's looking pretty good. So who knows? So check this out. I mentioned UK's president, Vladimir Zelensky. And, you know, uh, the guy who literally begged us, the American people, to forget everything going on in our own lives and all of our struggles, hand all of our money to him because he needs the money. They need the money. You know, we don't need the money to hear. Do we guys do we need the money here? I mean, I kind of need some money here because I'm not about to be poor before the government totally craps on us. But anyway, uh, yeah, so he um, despite. Most Americans saying, hell no, I'm not giving money to him. You know, Joe Biden said, no, nah, we'll do it. Here's a bunch of money. Here's a bunch of uh, American taxpayers' money. So he still gave him millions of dollars despite that. But anyway, he appointed Marina Abramovic to be an ambassador of Ukraine back in September of 2023, completely out of left field. He allegedly chose her because she put up an art installation in the Ukraine somewhere, and her alleged job will be to rebuild schools for children and will be working directly with children. Again, she is very close friends with the Clintons and the Podestas and is a key player to Pizzagate, as is evident in the leaked emails. So this should raise some red flags for a lot of people. I think obviously the world leaders don't care. They know. They know. They care. They don't give a fuck about what we think, you know. And so we need to be aware of this. And make sure that they don't get too far. I don't know what we can do, but I don't know. Whatever. Fuck it. We're fucked anyway. So. Now, I mentioned that in that photo of John Podesta, which was in the emails, that his middle finger on his left hand had a wound on it and was wrapped with the Band-Aid. I also mentioned that Marina has videos that were recorded as some of her rituals, one of which is uh, calls for human sperm, human breast milk, human blood, and the animal equivalents. And there's a part where she writes on a wall in blood the following direction. With a sharp knife, cut deeply into the middle finger of your left hand. Eat the pain. So, interestingly, you can find photos of numerous presidents, political figures such as Obama and all the Bushes, the Podestas, the Clintons. They all have the same bandaged finger, bandaged in the same spot on the same hand. And did you know that Obama and Bush are cousins? Tenth cousins once removed. Guess what? All presidents are ancestrally related. Goes all the way back to the original 13 families that rule the world every which way you can imagine. But I digress. It was that email from Susan Sandler to John Podesta about the handkerchief that really started to get things rolling. It is what led all of those early researchers to the guy we'll now talk about. James Achilles Elephantis. Who was James Achilles Elephantis? James Elephantis is the owner of the famed Comet Ping Pong Pizza Pizzeria that sits at 5037 Connecticut Avenue Northwest, right in the swampy taint that is Washington, D.C. The official narrative is that he is an entrepreneur, an art collector, a chef, and a restaurateur. 
Along with Comet Ping Pong, he owns another place called Buck's Fishing and Camping, right next to Best of Pizza, owned by Andrew Klein. Both restaurants are still in operation today, and I think because of the revelations that have come out since way back in 2016, which sparked this whole thing off, has caused business to slow down just a bit. But so how these places are still in operation is a question all in its own, right? But I think we can all connect the dots as to how this guy, who's been accused worldwide of brutally raping and murdering children, as well as running a massive pedophile ring involving very elite people, so I think we all have an idea of how this guy can keep these companies afloat. I mean, he's surrounded by attorneys, ex-political people, political people like like all these people that are powerful and influential, and so like they don't they don't care, you know they don't just don't care. Anyway, side note on Tony and John Podesta, really quick, they run a Podesta group, and were or are great friends with a former Republican congressman named Dennis Hastert, and Dennis had admitted to molesting at least four boys who were as young as 14 while he worked as a wrestling coach, a high school wrestling coach. He served in politics for three decades before anything came out about that, but he would be sentenced to 15 months in prison, which is an absurdly small amount of time for molesting four teenagers. John Podesta told him that he should vanish to an undisclosed Japanese island. <laughs> James was raised in Buffalo, New York, and Washington, D.C., where there isn't really much known about his early life. He started Bucks Fishing and Camping with the co-owner, Carol Greenwood, in 2003, and about three years later, the pair founded Comet Ping Pong. And by 2009, Carol Greenwood stepped away from both businesses because of whatever was going on inside of the establishments after hours. Yeah, she literally stepped away from the business partnership because of things going on after hours, things that she did not agree with and apparently could not do anything about. But they were obviously bad enough that she was just left. She's like, I'm out of here. don't want to do this anymore. So James then hired Vicky Ray to be head chef at Bucks and Laura Bonino to be head chef at Comet Ping Pong. He would also partner up with a Mexican restaurant, Muchas Gracias, in Washington, D.C., but let's get into the, his uh, his family. Where does his family come from? What's his background? As it turns out, Evelyn Achilles Rothschild was born in Buffalo, New York in 1886 and died in 1917 during World War One. He had an illegitimate son named Louis George. But since dad was dead, little Louis would take his mother's name, Alephantis. He would grow up and marry a woman named Helen Rappus, and they had birthed two sons. One was Achilles Lee Louis Salafantis, who impregnated Susan Reed Shoemaker. And their son would be little James Achilles Salafantis, born in 1974. I've also heard that his real daddy is James Rothschild. But either way, James Elephantis is a Rothschild. This is why he has elite friends such as the Clintons, who are very close friends to Uncle Evelyn and Lynn de Rothschild, who are often seen together. He's often a close buddy with George Soros. So yeah, he's connected to some major players. All these people are. Before he started Bucks in 2003, he had opened an art gallery called Transformer Art Gallery. But I'm unsure of anything about that other than I know that every single person with an intimate connection in this story is an art collector. 
and they don't just collect some random cool art that your friend would make for you out of like a pine cone and some string and glue and stuff, you know? These guys collect pedristy art, new children, weird satanic stuff, ritual stuff, ritual child abuse stuff. They collect that specific type of art. Tony Podesta has art. He's got a pretty interesting piece that hangs in his mansion. It's said to be a golden replica of the body position that was one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims. It's said to be a golden replica of the body position that one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims was in when Dahmer took photographs after, like, gutting him and beheading him. So the victim was a man, and he had been beheaded and gutted. And Dahmer placed him in a sort of reverse scorpion position, kind of, with his hands and feet under him and he was arched backwards. So his pelvis stuck up in the air. The furthest is really horrible stuff. And so Tony Podesta has this golden sculpture made to look just like the victim, just like the victim and has it hanging in the foyer of his house for everyone to see. And it was designed by Louis Bourgois and is named the arch of agony. And there are many photos of it all over the internet. Tony Podesta also has a strange room in the basement where he plays strange movies and art projects for his friends, as he describes them. He describes it as being a theater room in which all four walls of independent projectors where he and his buddies can watch, quote, complicated videos that are difficult to display, end quote. And unless you're a very close friend of his, you aren't seeing any of the so-called complicated videos that are difficult to display and my personal thought on that for whatever it's worth is that the videos are they're complicated and difficult to display because they're probably borderline illegal if not fully illegal but i don't know speculation maybe they'd watch reruns of the british baking show you know we all know that some of those recipes were complicated and the final result was sometimes difficult to display but who knows now, John Podesta is a huge fan of Katie Grannon's work. Katie is a photographer that specializes in documentary-style pictures of naked teenagers, which is apparently legal. Tony has a very large collection of her quote-unquote work all over his house. And there is a lot of weird art that is involved in this ongoing saga, and art seems to be a common aspect of this thing. It's kind of like a prerequisite if, if you want to be part of this weird satanic child sexual abuse for adrenochrome type shit, like you have to be very artistic per type of person, or at least collect art. I don't know. But one artist, Blana, Blana Derzvezic, is known for her crude and often concerning depictions of uh, children in various forms of bondage and suffering, some of them depicted scantily clothed with fear washed over their faces. That's always fun to look at. And another artist who painted some murals in comet Ping Pong, a man that goes by the name Arrington Dead Dion, Dioniso on Instagram, uh, she, he painted a mural that shows groups of adults holding a couple of disembodied heads of what look like to be female children. So I don't know. No, man. Let's move on from art. From here on out, we'll probably be jumping around the timeline to make sense of everything. So James Achilles Elephantus was mentioned in GQ magazine where they named him the 49th most influential person in Washington, D.C. out of 50. A restaurant owner was named the 49th most influential person in Washington, D.C. Now, there are a lot of people who have asked how and why. And I mean, how, yeah, I mean, how, how many people live in Washington, D.C.? And how many politicians and politically affiliated people 
are there that live and work in Washington, D.C., whose job it is to be influential within the government, right? Or within Washington, D.C., anyway. I mean, I'm sure there are a hell of a lot more than 50. So why was this guy named on that list of most influential people? There's something else to it. But get this. His name, James Achilles Elephantus, when translated into French, is Jamie Les Elephantos. Let's do that again. Jaume les enfants. Jaume les enfants. And it means, I love children. On top of that, he uses or was using an image of Antonius for his profile picture on Instagram. Antonius was a Greek youth who was said to be Hadrian's favorite mm. boy. Uh-huh. Hadrian was a Roman emperor between 117 and 138 AD. Now, it's well known that Greece has always held a different stance, a more lenient stance on pederasty than that of, say, the United States or most of the Western world. But here is this 49th most influential person of D.C. representing himself as a child, a a lover of children, and his self-adopted name literally means, I love children. It's crazy. James opened Comet Ping Pong in 2006, just down the street from Bucks Fishing and Camping on Connecticut Avenue, which is touted as being a family-friendly restaurant. It's also been a venue for very questionable live music, which we will get into next episode. But it was and continues to be a political fundraising venue for Democrats since its inception. James is also the owner of Castellum Achilles LLC, which owns a museum called... The Pegasus. It was or is located at 3518 11th Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. The building was previously owned by Joseph T. Sheeve and Nellie Hubert, who also worked at the New York at the New Hope Academy, a Christian school of ties to the Mooney's cult, who were involved with ritualistic abuse and mind control experimentation. That is another episode in itself. Right next to the building is a public park called Monroe Park. Or Trolley Park. The park's commissioner and owner is Richard Dubister, who is a real estate agent for Evers & Co., which is run by Donna Evers, or Evers. And Donna's daughter, Angia Evers, sits on James Transformers Art Gallery Board of Directors. Connections, connections, connections. James registered Pegasus Museum in June of 2014, and only three days after purchasing the building, he added the address to Google Maps and then gave it the first and only five-star review. But despite that, the MSM and their shills went hard at denying that the place even existed. But there was one independent researcher named Ryan O'Neill, and he would dive into the matter, and he made a video about the museum and James Elephantis, which he posted to YouTube. What sparked his entire investigation in the first place was a photo that was posted to James Elephantis' Instagram, where he went by the name Jimmy Comet. The photo was the infamous kill room, and for anyone familiar with this case knows what the kill room was, for those that are not familiar... Kill room means exactly what it's called, a kill room. And I'll point out here that the reason why James Elephantis and Comet Ping Pong started to be scrutinized by the public was because Comet Ping Pong was mentioned numerous times in the leaked emails in reference to holding Democratic fundraising events. And we all know that Killery loves herself some pizza, some say too much, such as her daughter Chelsea. I'll also point out here that 
James also made numerous financial contributions to Killer's campaign. The photo on his Instagram of the kill room showed what looks like, you know, one of those large walk-in coolers that you typically see in a restaurant, such like a pizza shop. And in the comments for that photo, you see James saying, oh, yeah, this looks fun. And another user by the name Working on Monat Cheese, probably all heard about him, posted hashtag kill room. This would be a man named Jeffrey B. Smith, who commented on a number of very strange photos that his circle of friends were posting. He was also making child-sized coffins and posting them on Instagram. Jeffrey and those connected would set their accounts on private after this story broke, though. So, I don't know. Uh, you can find you can still find these um, pretty easily, but his Instagram pictures and stuff, people like, archive them. But another friend, Nile Lawson, commented on the Kill Room photo, just rinse it off when you're done. And James responded, hashtag murder. So, it's a little strange. I'll also point out here that by November 7th, 2016, soon after the independent researchers connected the dots to James and began to scour his Instagram account and luckily archiving what they found, James Elephantis would make his account private. At any rate, the mainstream media and their devoted deniers went to town to discredit any and all mention of the aforementioned kill room. They started by saying that the alleged kill room was below Comet Ping Pong in the basement. Then they said it was impossible for there to be anything below Comet Ping Pong since, in their words, there wasn't a basement, nor were there any tunnels, both assertions being completely wrong. First, everyone who's looked into this knows that there are tunnels all over that area in Washington, D.C. Second, James Elephantis admitted that there was indeed a basement under Comet Ping Pong during an interview for Metro Weekly back in 2016, and he said that every year they store 10 tons of canned tomatoes that they harvest in the basement of Comet Ping Pong, unless he meant bucks. Who knows? People were connecting the dots, and the dots were leading to some wild places. I mean, the leaked emails laid it all out and left a lot of breadcrumbs for independent researchers to pick up, and it quickly gained steam, which scared a lot of people who were directly involved, naturally. But speaking of naturally... This is where we'll have to end this episode, seeing as time has me rather constrained this fine evening. But fear not, my livacious listeners. Next week, we will continue this incredibly fucked up story, which is ongoing, by the way. Contrary to what the mainstream media tells you, this whole thing known as Pizzagate has not been debunked. Nothing about it has ever been debunked. The mainstream media and their journalists, their journalists, have but one job to push propaganda for those who are paying their bills. That's it. They're not even real journalists, man. They sit down there and they talk about their opinions. Anyway, we covered a lot today, but we only scratched the surface. We scratched the very tip of the zit. Maybe tomorrow we'll start squeezing, right? So next week, I'll introduce more people who are involved, and I'll go over more of those leaked emails and more about James Elephantis and his Instagram account. I'll talk more about Comet Ping Pong and the artists who perform there after hours, such as one group called Majestic Ape. I'll also get into the other businesses that line Connecticut Avenue in Washington, D.C., where Comet Ping Pong, Best of Pizza, Beyond Borders, Terrasol, Bucks, Fishing and Camping, Politics, and Pros, Bookstore and Coffeehouse, among others, are all located. I'll go over some of the old artwork inside Comet Ping Pong before it was removed once all of this attention was being brought to the establishment. And I'll go over Edgar Madison Welch, who was the man that shot a couple of rounds inside of the building, allegedly trying to save the children. 
There's a lot of sketchy shit surrounding that entire thing, so we will definitely get into that. And who knows what else I'll talk about. So yeah, we have a lot to cover. We'll have a lot to go over the next couple of weeks, couple of episodes. So we hope you tune in and learn about the facts with us, because this is all very fascinating stuff and needs to be told to millions of people who can make a difference. With that said, take care and be kind.